Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ruben Amalalo, and I'm the youth ministry director here at FCF, um, and I get the privilege to bring you the word today. Our uh, passage today is actually in um, Matthew chapter 11, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 19. I know it's a lot. I'll, I'll try to take us there. So i read the scripture for us, pray, and then um, we'll get to it. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. That's the word of God. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, dear Lord, you're good, and uh, your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to hear it. I pray that, Lord, as I speak, uh, you'll speak through me. Pray that you would go before me and prepare the hearts of your children. Uh, and I pray for those who don't know you. I pray that this will be a time for you to um, show them your glory and show them who you truly are through my preaching. Pray that anything that I say that's not um, useful, I pray that you help it to fall on deaf ears. But the stuff that, Lord, you want us to hear, I pray that you grip our hearts with, that we might see you better. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, so we're going through a sermon series on 
um, the book of Matthew, and the title we've titled it, The King and the Kingdom. Um, the Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus, the promised king who has come to usher in the kingdom of heaven, to convince both Jews and Gentiles that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, to strengthen believers to be the radical community of the king in their calling to make disciples of all nations, even in the face of opposition. In our passage today, there are two main groups of people struggling with disappointment, with who Jesus is. Now, disappointment is actually a mild way of putting their reaction to Jesus. In fact, they are offended. See, John the Baptist and the group that Jesus calls this generation, both are rebuked in our text. And from their rebuke, I want us to learn a few important things about the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm in, I'm in seminary currently, and um, one of the things that seminarians love to do is argue and talk about Bible stuff. Um, so I, uh, I mentioned that I'm actually uh, preaching about the kingdom of heaven. Um, and for the first time, no one had anything to say. Because it's hard to actually understand precisely what Jesus means by the kingdom of heaven. He tells us what it's like, right? He tells us what's going to happen to it. He tells us what happens in it. He tells us who gets in it and who's not in it, right? But he doesn't precisely tell us what the kingdom of God is. Now, today, I just want us to talk about the surprise of the kingdom. Um, and I have three points that I want us to see from this surprise. Um, the first is that it's a different kind of king who's running this kingdom. The second is that it's a different kind of kingdom. And the last is that Jesus, the king of the kingdom, comes to make us a different kind of people. So one of the interesting things I noticed, um, like I said, preaching, I mean, preparing for this message, is that Jesus nowhere gives us a direct description of what the kingdom of heaven is. He tells us what it's like and what happens in it. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, he actually gives us a, a whole list of what, kingdom, what the kingdom of heaven is like. In the same sense, rather than answering John's questions directly, Jesus shows John, John's disciples, what the kingdom of heaven is like. Essentially telling John, remember when you were preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, here it is. It's my kingdom, not yours. So that's my first point. My first point is a different kind of king. Um, see, now, of all the people we meet in the four Gospels, no one was more convinced about who Jesus was than John. So much so that John is actually worshiping in the womb. If you guys remember in the Nativity stories, uh, we are told that when Mary goes to Elizabeth, in the book of John, it tells us that Elizabeth exclaims, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. See, John was also preparing the way for the Messiah, saying that he came, um, he, John was preparing the way for the Messiah, saying to the people that came to him, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
and that's Matthew 3.11. See, when Jesus comes to John to be baptized by John, he tells him, I need to be baptized by you, not the other way around. See, he was there when the voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And even in the Gospel of John, not, not John the Baptist, the Gospel writer, the apostle, um, when his disciples saw Jesus walking towards him, John himself says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one of whom I said, All after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed in Israel. But in our passage, John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one to come? Or should we go looking for another? See, many of you might not catch it because you've been reading the Bible for so long. Just gloss over this. But if you've been reading the Bible, if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you see the profile that the, the gospel writers give of John, this is utterly shocking. It's shocking. It makes no sense almost. And the only reason why anyone would add this story to the Bible is because it must have happened. Because it doesn't make any sense. If you think about it, this, this is the last person you want doubting Jesus. One, he was popular. He was really popular. We actually know in the book of Acts that he still has disciples after Jesus dies. Right? He's down as another person you want doubting Jesus. If you want to make a case of, for Jesus. Where's the fall? He actually doesn't even give us a response. It's almost like the, the Bible writer is telling us, see how John is responding? Learn from it. See, this episode is actually, um, of John sending his disciples to question Jesus is so perplexing that commentators actually are trying to find a way around it. Um, some say it wasn't really John asking. He was just asking for his disciples. Or maybe his disciples had questions, and they asked in John's name. You know, like sometimes when you're in a meeting or you're in a class, and you have a stupid question, and you don't want them to know that it's you, so you ask for your friend? Right? Is John having one of those moments? But I think John is actually asking for himself because of the way the story is, tell up, is set up. We are told that John is in prison and he hears, right? So it, it seems like he's responding to what he hears about Jesus. See, elsewhere we are told that he is in jail for confronting Herod, basically the puppet king of the Romans at the time, for taking, I mean, for taking his brother, his brother's wife. He's confronting Herod for taking his brother's wife. And this prison situation has John questioning. He's having doubts about Jesus. See, we're not told exactly what he heard about Jesus, but it looks like John has heard enough to possibly be even offended by Jesus. See, ironically, 
you'll think that Jesus would be the one to be offended, right? Because his cousin is having doubts about him. But Jesus is actually, this passage is actually teaching us that there is an offense that we can have of Jesus that will cause us to stumble. See, I think there's a lesson here about doubt. Now, bringing your, your honest doubts to Jesus will not offend him. Let me say that one, one more time. Bringing your honest doubts to Jesus will not offend him. But there is a doubt that would offend the doubter instead. The word offense here actually in the Greek means tripped up or stumble. The image here is someone who is following and then just decides to stop following because he tripped. See, John's struggle, therefore, must be one of the worst kinds, especially because of what we know about him. We know he was quite an austere man. He was a disciplined man, so much so that people looked at him and said, that guy has a demon. See, but rather than speculating about what's going on with John, I'm just going to assume John, this austere, disciplined man, is just like you and me when we go through struggles, really severe struggles. Severe struggles that, question us, that causes us to question. Especially if we're doing the right thing. See, in one sense, this passage teaches us the role of suffering and loss and disappointment and rejection and how Jesus deals with that. It also te- tells us what kind of king Jesus is. See, this understanding of the role of suffering and loss and disappointment is actually very important today because how many people do you know who say, I cannot worship a God who allows suffering? Oh, there's too much pain in the world. Why would a good God allow suffering? Or people who are just hurt by the church, disappointed in what happens in the church. Why would God let that happen? Now, I'm not minimizing suffering or disappointment. I'm merely stating that Jesus is addressing a real problem that we have. See, I think Jesus answers the suffering question by demonstration. Again, Jesus doesn't directly tell us why there's suffering, right? Just like he doesn't directly tell us what the kingdom is. He tells us what it's like. He tells John's disciples, look around. Who do you see? He tells John's disciples to go and report what they see and what they hear. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor hear good news. Preach to them. This is Jesus' fundamental view of himself. These are the people that Jesus says he draws to himself. See, this list of people tells us what kind of king Jesus is. He's a king for suffering people. 
people who have been rejected by society. These are the kind of people Jesus rallies up behind him. See, in addition to demonstrating the kind of people that Jesus is touching, he adds a benediction to the end of his statement. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. But how could John be offended? I think John is actually more than just disappointed. Um, I think John is actually more disappointed than he is worried about his prison situation. Because actually in the book of Mark, we are told that John is in prison. And even though he's in prison, Herod is keeping him safe. I don't know how that's possible, but Herod is keeping him safe in prison. Because he knows he's a righteous man and he's holy. So I don't think it's the suffering situation that he's dealing with in the prison that's causing him to doubt. Because we know, again, he's a very austere man. So what was it causing John to have this dark night of the soul? What would cause John to go as far as to ask Jesus the audacity? Are you the one, or should we look for another? Dare I say, I think John is fundamentally disappointed because Jesus did not fit into his box. As devout as John was, like most of us, he could not escape misdiagnosing the main problem of his society. He knew that there was, if there was any hope for restoring Israel back to its glory, Jesus was the man for the job. He knew it. I see, I think John is dealing with, in one sense, the same thing that Jonah deals with, where he's having the struggle of what he knows about God and what God is doing. See, but there I say, John wants us to, I mean, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus fits into no one's box. Not even John's. Even John had to have a come-to-Jesus moment. Even John had to enter the kingdom. Even John had to reconcile what he thought he knew about Jesus and what Jesus said about himself. Now think about it. Jesus is God. We don't tell him who he is. I was telling the first service, um, I was pretty down when I came into service today because I'm just tired. I've had a really long week. I was sick for most of it. Um, but while we were singing Agnes Dale, the holy, 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 holy part, it just made sense. The word holy means other. God is not like us. That's the fundamental most basic thing that if we don't get anything from reading the Bible, he's not like us. He can't be like us. See, family, suffering and disappointment is not the worst thing that could happen to us in this life. I think fitting Jesus into our own box, that's convenient, is. 
So much so that when we meet Jesus in the scriptures and what he says, we are actually offended. God forbid that we tell God who he is. That's dangerous. See, the Jews, like us, thought their biggest problem was out there. <laughs> See, John thought the problem was Herod. The Romans were the problem. But Jesus says the problem is more personal than that. It's interesting. When you read the gospel, it's really interesting how little Jesus mentions the Romans nor Herod. Now, this is an occupying force in the Holy Land. It's almost like it's inconsequential to Jesus. It's like he's writing a letter to people in a war zone. <laughs> he doesn't even mention it. To be offended by Jesus for his agenda is no little trifle. Which, he, which is why he literally says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Which brings me to my second point. Um, it's a different kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing. See, after John's disciples leave, Jesus sets uh, a few questions before the crowd to teach them two very important things about the kingdom. And again, he doesn't tell us directly what the kingdom is. He just tells us what happens in it, right? So there are two main things he says in, uh, from verse 7 to 15. He says, it's a great kingdom, is the first. And secondly, it's a kingdom that's under attack. So the first, it's a great kingdom. See, Jesus tells the people that as great as John is, even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. See, you're in a great kingdom, not because of anything you do in it, but just because you're in it. See, being an American is a big deal. <laughs> I naturalized. <laughs> being an immigrant, you know what I mean. I naturalized. I had to swear, become an American, uh, devout, I mean, get away from my other country. Um, but being an American is a big deal. Now, if you're a refugee right now, you get it. If you're in a state that's falling apart, you get it. See, we talk about human rights, but your human rights are as important as the state you belong to. The only person who can argue for your human rights it's your state. And if you don't have a state, guess what? You don't have rights. You don't have a home. You don't have anyone to defend you. In the same sense, when you're in this kingdom, you're great. <laughs> Even greater than the greatest man to ever walk this earth. Now, to get the radical nature of this comment that even the greatest, um, the least in the kingdom is greater than the greatest person in the world, you have to understand the people's perception of who Jesus, uh, John was in those days. 
See, like I said earlier, if you were making up a story about Jesus, John is not the person you want doubting him. See, in, uh, in, the, in, the, in John, the apostle, again, John chapter 1, verse 19, um, the priests and the Levites, we are told, these are the religious authorities from Jerusalem, uh, are sent to ask him, who are you? He confessed, I, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? See, Jesus basically tells the crowd, this is why you went out into the wilderness to see him. This is why you took great pains to go out there to see him. He's the greatest man to ever live. And you went out there and you saw it. So one of the things that my wife says about me all the time is she can't take me anywhere. I can't go anywhere with you. I cannot take you anywhere. Because when I hear words like best restaurant, best movie, best tourist attraction, best, best anything, I think I actually believe it. So when I go and it doesn't fit my profile of what the best is, I get disappointed. And I let people know that. <laughs> right? And Jesus is saying, John did not disappoint. He did not. You went out there and you saw him and you saw that he was the real deal. He was genuine. One of the things um, we're talking about in D group is actually the difference between the definite article D and the indefinite article A. You do a little bit of grammar. Um, so, so that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the resurrection, he's making an exclusive claim. Get me A water versus get me D water, right? There's something particular you have in mind. So when Jesus says John is more than a prophet in verse 9, um, or in verse 9 and says, this is he of whom it is written, they all knew exactly what he was talking about. He was the prophet that was supposed to come. Get, get this. The one who is least in the kingdom is greater than than the prophet. Again, we're not like jolted by this because we see it so many times. See, but the prophet meant the Messiah was coming. It was like a double signal. God was telling his people, all right, so this is how you'll know the Messiah is here. The prophet will come, and then the Messiah will come. Okay, John is the prophet. And that's what we saw in our uh, scripture reading in Malachi 3. So that's the first thing um, that we learn about the kingdom. That being in the kingdom merely makes you great. Greater than even the prophet that was to come. The second thing Jesus teaches about the kingdom is that it's a kingdom that's currently under attack. 
He tells us in verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now again, this is also a shocker because this did not make sense to the crowd's understanding of what the kingdom was supposed to look like. Now I have to confess, I myself was confused at first too. I had to figure out a way to make sense of it. How can the kingdom of heaven be under attack? I thought it was supposed to be better than the world. There was supposed to be a haven, like a settlement, a colony, right, that's protected by God. And again, you have to also put yourself in the shoes of these very expectant Jews. See, the current administration was a mess, and the Romans were occupying the Holy Land. See, John is in prison, and is about to die. Not only that, not too long after, Jesus is going to die as well. He says that Jesus is actually giving them a reality check about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like. A reality check that actually we all need to see. The kingdom has suffering people in it. The kingdom has suffered violence. And I don't get the sense, especially after looking at church history, (laughs) that it's going to change anytime soon. Until Jesus comes back. This is actually pretty personal for me because that's how I came to faith. I went to a voice at a martyrs convention. I actually remember the date. It's September 21st, 2007. That was a turning point in my life. I heard Christians who were suffering telling us that they don't want it to actually stop. Didn't make any sense to me either. These were Christians from China saying they don't want to be anything like us in the West. They said we'd grown weak. We are utterly useless. We keep one foot in the world and the other in the kingdom. It's too wide. It won't work. We try to amass as much as we can in this world and also have heaven. It's hard to long for heaven when you have heaven on earth. It just is. That's why Jesus says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than to go through an eye of needle. That was a jolt for me. I don't think I'd ever heard that as much as I did on that day. I realized something really important. Suffering is not the worst thing that could happen to us. Keeping Jesus in our box conveniently is. See, when we vote even the most Christian-friendly administration in the office, into very high office, in hopes to maintain our freedoms, We have to realize that that's just temporary. That's not the main thing. And a lot of times I feel like Christians fight more for that, for their liberties, and they fight for the things that Jesus is quite passionate about. 
And they fight for the things that Jesus says, these are my people. Those who are the outcasts, those who are struggling, those who are suffering. Jesus goes on in verse 14 and says, you are willing to, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now later on in, uh, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus actually takes his, some of his disciples to the mountaintop and they see him in his glory. And we are told that he's shining like the sun and his clothes are white as light. They have been with him a while, yet they're still struggling to make sense of this Jesus guy. He's standing there with Moses and Elijah. And Peter literally says, if you like Jesus, I can make a tent so that we can stay here. I want us to stay up here. And then later Jesus tells him, don't tell anyone about this until I die and resurrect again. Again, it didn't make sense to them. How are you going to die? What does that have to do with the Messiah? What? So it's in that context that they actually ask Jesus a question. And it might seem random to us, but it showed that they were actually putting two and two together. So they asked Jesus this question. Isn't Elijah supposed to come first? Wasn't there supposed to be a first signal? Did we miss it? And Jesus tells them in verse 11, Matthew chapter 17, 11, he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, the disciples, like us, should be putting two and two together as well. John suffered. Jesus suffered. The disciples suffered. Ergo, we will suffer. It's a kingdom that's under attack. See, no one wants to be a part of a weak kingdom, though. No one wants to be a part of a kingdom that, that looks weak. But Jesus is telling both the disciples and us that this is a different kind of a kingdom. Because the glory of the kingdom is not displayed in strength and outward power. But actually in weakness. The foolishness of the cross, Paul calls it. Blessed is the one who is offended by me. Which brings me to um, who is not offended by me, sorry. Wow, that would have been horrible because that's not what I've been saying the whole time. That would be a contradiction. <laughs> um, which brings me to my last point. Um, Jesus came to make us a different kind of people. So Jesus shows that the people have already taken offense at him. They've already stumbled. Um, remember at the beginning I said that there are two groups that doubt Jesus in our passage. See, this group Jesus compares to children who have no wisdom. He says in verse 16, 
But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunken, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. To call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard is actually not just a mere insult. It's a technical term. It's most likely referring to the passage in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, which told, if a, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, of his city, and at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, there were people in Israel who, by God's command, are supposed to be stoned for being stubborn and rebellious and drunkards and gluttons. Jesus wasn't the guy. And they knew it. Yet they accused him of doing it. See, Jesus is most likely hinting at the reality that he is going to die at the hand of a generation that calls him to dance to their music and mourn as they sing a dirge. See, but what a mess things would be if Jesus were to dance to our music. If we were to fit Jesus in our box. Because that means no cross. That means no salvation. No justification. No peace with God. Indeed, we are told in 1 Corinthians 2.8 that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they did crucify him because he did not fit their box. Praise God that Jesus doesn't fit our box. Amen? Pray for us. Lord, you're good and your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that it corrects um, us when we are going astray. Pray that you give us ears to listen um, and give us hearts not to be offended. In Jesus' name, amen.